Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number four, the book of Hosea chapters one and two. Well, symbolism is at the heart of this book of Hosea. Now, at times trying to reconcile the biblical concepts of symbolic versus literal can be daunting. And all too often in the academic world and even at the personal Bible study level, one concept's regularly set against the other as though they're opponents. Of this there's no need, because symbolism is God's way of helping humans to understand deeply divine concepts for which there's practically no adequate vocabulary. So symbolism is also a way to transport these concepts across cultural boundaries through the ex great expanse of time. Symbolism is not merely a clever way of storytelling. It is meant to impart God principles that can be more easily remembered, understood, and then applied on a wider scale. Now this is especially important in the books of prophecy because symbolism is invariably employed in all of them, although in some it's more subtle, while in others like Hosea it is a dominant feature. So in the case of biblical symbolism, the issue of literalness has to be applied in the sense of translating those words accurately, understanding them verbatim, but within the culture and the context of the times they were penned, as opposed to manipulating the words, to make what seems to make more sense of them today. In the case of the book of Hosea, to take the words literally, we must recognize that the literary devices used are largely symbolism, and to make matters more complicated, the symbolism is often presented to us in ancient Hebrew poetry. And as we all probably know, a poet will often choose words not so much as their exactness, as for their ability to rhyme and to fit with the meter and the structure of a poem. And poetry, you know, is really an excellent way in all ages to create something memorable and to conjure up elegant word pictures of thoughts and emotions. Poetry is inherently human. And thus it's an excellent means of communicating among humans. Well, we left off at chapter 1, verse 7 of Hosea, so let's reread some of Hosea. Open your Bibles to Hosea chapter 1. We're going to read just three or four verses to get things started. Hosea chapter 1, we're going to read verses 6 through 9. Hosea chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. She, Gomer, conceived again and bore a daughter. And Adonai said to him, Name her Lo Ruchmah, unpitied, 
for I will no longer have pity on the house of Israel. By no means will I forgive them, but I will pity the house of Judah. I will save them, not by bow and sword and battle and horses or cavalry, but by Adonai their God. After weaning Lo-Ruchmah, she conceived and bore a son. And Adonai said, name him Lo-Ami, not my people, because you are not my people and I will not be your God. That's something we don't want to hear. Now, depending on your Bible version, chapter 1 of the book of Hosea may not end at verse 9 and may instead go through verse 11. So for the Bibles that end at verse 9, those two more verses appear can appear as the opening verses of chapter 2. Why is it that way? The Hebrew Bible structures Hosea to end chapter 1 with the words of what we call verse 9. While the English structures it to continue on through verse 11. Nonetheless, all the words and the verses are there regardless of your version. It's all the more reason that I urge people to disregard chapter and verse markings in your Bibles because these numberings and divisions were never there in the original. They were added by editors a thousand years after the Bible as we know it was created and the canon closed. And while these numberings and divisions were meant to be helpful, chapter divisions especially can often give us the wrong impression that one narrative has closed and a new one has begun, or that a location has changed, or that a, a circumstance has shifted, when none of these situations are necessarily the case. Now there's a couple of things for us to briefly review from our previous lesson. First is that Hosea's prophecy is only meant to apply to the northern kingdom of Ephraim, Israel, which consisted of the ten tribes of Israel. Verse 7 specifically tells us that the other two tribes of Israel that form the southern kingdom of Judah are not going to suffer, at least not for now, alongside their Israelite brothers of the north. Second is that at this point, Hosea has carried out God's command to marry Gomer, and by now she's giving, given him two children, a boy and a girl. The boy was named Jezreel, the girl Lo-Ruchamah. These Hebrew names, when translated English, mean means God sows and unpitied or no mercy. These names are meant symbolically, but they were also the actual names of those two children. Now verse 8 tells us that Gomer now provided Hosea with another son, their third child. Now just how spread out were the births of these children? Eh, probably somewhere from five to ten years, from the birth of the first to the third because the weaning process lasted anywhere from two to as much as four, even five years in that era, often depending on the circumstances, such as how 
mobile a family was or the availability of food. To an extent, the current custom. In verse 9, we read that Adonai said to name that third child Lo-Ami. Now, some Bibles will say that God said to name the child with that name. In fact, God isn't directly mentioned here. Rather, the male gender is used in the grammar of the opening word of the verse, and so some Bible versions more accurately and literally read, Then he said. Who's he? Most translators assume the he means God, and so they, simply, they simply insert the word God. But what did we learn about verse 1 that begins in the Hebrew, Dabar Yehoveh Asher Hayah El Hosea. Okay? Or in English, the word of Yehovah came to Hosea. Recall that the word, as used here, doesn't mean speech. It does not mean syllables and sentences. The word is a name for a manifestation of God a living divine entity. He is one of the persons or living attributes of God. In fact, it was some manifestation of the Word that appeared on earth as Yeshua. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. Who was with God in the beginning? The Word. And all things came to be through Him, and without Him nothing made had being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of mankind, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not suppressed it. Okay, so the He who told Hosea to name that third child Lo-Ami was the Word, which was God. But he was God in the same way as we say the Holy Spirit or the Son is God. Now because understanding what the term the Word means is critical, so far as this possible for us to understand. I need to say something at this point about the Word and what the Apostle John had to say about Yeshua. Now the general implication among Christian church doctrine is that the meaning of Jesus being the Word in the flesh inherently means that all of whatever the Word was at one time it transformed into Jesus. Thus, the Word for 30 or so years existed only as and entirely as a Jewish man up in the Galilee. Further, this would also necessarily mean that whatever form Jesus is now in heaven is as a singular form that sits next to God on his own throne in a waiting mode with basically nothing to do until the Father sends it back. Now, I think none of this is reflective 
of what the Bible actually says. But rather, it's something that man-made doctrine has created. And so we read into the Bible something that's just not there. Now, to help us through this, because this isn't easy, to help us through this, let's think on the Holy Spirit for a moment. Now, while we can speak of the Holy Spirit in the singular, that is, as a singular divine entity, one, it's also an entity that lives within all believers. So, is the Holy Spirit divided up among millions of believers, each receiving only a portion? Or perhaps he multiplies himself to make countless Holy Spirits. Now, if we reject the notion of many Holy Spirits or a divided up Holy Spirit, then we must also ask if the Holy Spirit only exists today in a certain identifiable singular location on planet Earth. This is because his place of residence is said by the church to be only within believing human beings, and therefore logic says he can no longer exist in heaven, or anywhere else for that matter. However, we don't really believe that, do we? So we tend not to have a lot of problem with the concept of the Holy Spirit, in some mysterious way, having no singular, identifiable location. The same Holy Spirit exists in many places at once, even in a different dimension, possibly with no limit. Nor when confronted with the notion, do we think of the Holy Spirit as having completely transformed into something that never was before the occasion of Pentecost. So it's helpful then to think of, to sort of mentally picture the divine, the Word, in a very similar way. The Word still exists as He has from the beginning. He has not changed. So while Jesus was, in John's sense of it, the Word when He was present on earth, Jesus the human Jewish man didn't represent all that the Word was, or is, or as the only place for that form of the Word, then, that existed. Or put it another way, the entirety of the Word was not removed from one location and somehow transferred in totality into Mary's womb as a Jewish fetus. Hang in there with me. Mysterious? Very hard to conceive of? Troubling? Most certainly. But think upon those first few words of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. How do we reconcile the Word being with God, that is, in a certain sense, identifiably separate from God, and yet also simultaneously 
being God. Ladies, you can't be both with your husband and at the same time be your husband. And so how do we reconcile this attribute or person of God called the Word now becoming flesh and yet at the same time remaining as God? Therefore, we are never meant to think that for a while the entire, the entirety of the attribute or person called the Word was completely reformulated into Yeshua of Nazareth and existed in no other place and no other way. In other words, the Word exists and works similarly as the Holy Spirit, but with different functions. Now, strangely, this matter of the existence of the Word is rarely talked about in Christian circles, except in New Testament exploration and in the context of Jesus Christ. So we must be careful now that we understand that the Word as a divine living spiritual, spiritual entity was speaking to Hosea and other prophets hundreds of years prior to the birth of Yeshua. Unlike what the implication within Christianity might say, it was not the person of Jesus speaking into the ear of Hosea. It was the Word. The Word existed long before the man, Yeshua, was born. Jesus, if you would, is a product of the Word who in some way possessed characteristics of the Word. Jesus, Yeshua, was the name of a living, fleshly human being that was subject to all the ravages of time and all the needs of life like we all are. A living human being who could only be in one place at one time, who lived for a finite amount of time and then died, but now is alive, and in another and an entirely different form in heaven, that's also mysterious. I think that's probably enough to think about, so let's move on. Back to verse 9. The name given to Gomer's newest baby was Loami. It means not my people. God emphasizes the meaning of the name by saying that by being declared not my people automatically also entails Yehovah no longer being Israel's God. Those two things are organically linked. Not my people, not my God. Here's where the majority of Bible scholars, in my opinion, kind of go off the rails a little bit. Because they fail to grasp the wider context of what's happening here. First, let's talk about God saying He will no longer be their God. Well, God is going to exile those ten tribes of the northern kingdom to foreign lands, to Gentile nations, as a punishment for their faithlessness and their idolatry. It was a given 
and the thought of the Hebrews and virtually all nations, that every nation had its own separate national God. Every nation. This is part of the reason that King Jeroboam and the general population of the northern kingdom could seriously say that even though they worshipped Baal in the form of golden calf, they also worshipped Jehovah. They saw no contradiction. They saw no problem with this idea. Baal and Jehovah each served different functions in their way of thinking. This is because Jehovah was the national God of Israel. But as the national God, he didn't serve every function that the people wanted and needed, they thought, from their gods. There were, they believed, other gods, one that provided rain, another protection from disease and war, yet a different one gave fertility to the crops, to the women, so on and so forth. The point is, a national god was anchored to a piece of land, to a particular geographical location, a nation within its boundaries. If a person who worshipped that national god traveled outside of the boundaries of that god's territory, then he lost all contact with that god because he had left that god's jurisdiction. It was the god of the territory of the nation he now found himself in that he'd have to start to acknowledge and to worship. He'd have to switch gods until he returned to his former nation. The bottom line's this. In Hebrew thinking, if Israel were to be expelled from their land and then sent into different nations, they would also be leaving behind their God, Jehovah, thus severing the relationship. So in that way, indeed, Jehovah would no longer be their God. Now, I have no doubt this is the way Hosea understood this. This is how those who heard Hosea's prophecy took it to mean, although that's not exactly how God intended it. God meant it in a much more expansive way that dovetailed into what happened on Mount Sinai some 500 years earlier. There we read this in Exodus 6, verse 7. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am Adonai, your God. It actually says Jehovah, your God, who freed you from the forced labor of the Egyptians. So, in this statement in Hosea 1.9, God said he was going to back away from Israel at this time and in some ways reverse what was offered to Israel so long ago. An offer, by the way, that Israel, all 12 tribes, resoundingly accepted. Now, here's the thing we should immediately take from this. Following God in a covenant relationship brings obligations upon us. Obligations. Those obligations 
are expressed in the terms of the covenant. Now, if we fail in our obligations, the result can be devastating. And although the language being used is expressed symbolically in marriage and family terms, what is being communicated as a, as a uh, universal God principle is that rebellion against Him can bring with it a dissolving of our personal relationship with Him, and then also the loss of any right to be protected under a covenant that we in our wickedness willfully broke. I'd like for us now to read the second chapter of Hosea, and I'm going to continue to speak about this breaking of, this, of the covenant with God. So open your Bibles to Hosea chapter 2 now. Hosea chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2. Nevertheless, the people of Israel will number as many as the grains of sand by the sea, which cannot be measured or counted, so that the time will come when instead of being told, you're not my people, it will be said to them, you are the children of the living God. Then the people of Judah and the people of Israel will be gathered together. They will appoint for themselves one leader. And they will go up out of the land, for that will be a great day, the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, Ami, my people. Say to your sisters, Ruchmah, pitied. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she isn't my wife and I'm not her husband. She must remove her whoring from her face, her adulteries from between her breasts. Otherwise I will strip her naked and place her as she was on the day she was born. Make her like a desert, place her like a, a dry land, and kill her with thirst. I'll have no pity on her children, for they are children of whoring. Their mother prostituted itself, herself rather. She who conceived them behaved shamelessly. She said, I will pursue my lovers who will give me my food and water, wool, flax, olive oil, wine. Therefore, I will block her way with thorns, put up a hedge so she can't find her paths. She will pursue her lovers, but not catch them. She will seek them, but won't find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, because things were better for me then than they are now. For she doesn't know it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, I who increased her silver and gold, which they used for bail. So I'll take back my grain at harvest time and my wine in its season. I'll snatch away my wool and flax, given to cover her naked body, now I will uncover her shame, while her lovers watch, and no one will save her from me. I will end her happiness, her festivals, Rosh Hodesh, new moons, and Shabbats, Sabbaths, and all her designated times. I'll ravage her vines and fig trees, of which she says, These are my wages that my lovers have given me. But I will turn them into a forest, and wild animals will eat them. I'll punish her for offering incense on the feast days of the Baals, when she decked herself with her earrings and her jewels, pursuing her lovers, forgetting me, says Adonai. But now I'm going to woo her. I'll bring her out to the desert and will speak to her heart. I will give her her vineyards from there and from the Achor Valley as a gateway to hope. She will respond there as she did when young as she did when she came up from Egypt. On that day, says Adonai, you will call me Ishi, my husband. 
you will no longer call me Bailey, my master, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. They will never again be mentioned by name. When that day comes, I'll make a covenant for them with the wild animals and the birds in the air, the creeping things of the earth. I will break bow and sword, sweet battle from the land, make them lie down securely. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in grace, and in compassion. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you will know, Adonai. And when that day comes, I'll answer, says Adonai. I'll answer the sky, I'll answer it, uh, it, and it will answer the earth, and the earth will answer the corn and wine and oil, and they will answer Jezreel, God will sow. I will sow her for me in the land, I will have pity on lo I will say to Lo-Ami, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. Love this verse, not a verse, but this chapter. You know, it's fascinating that, in essence, the last verse of chapter 1 speaks of consequences of breaking the covenant with God, and then immediately, the first verse of chapter 2 speaks of restoration. In a nutshell, we see the true nature and character of God as a God who on the one hand demands obedience and will punish, will curse his own for their disobedience. But on the other hand, such punishment doesn't have to be the end of the story. He will, on his terms, restore us to himself. Now, what else is redemption except restoration? Redemption means a change of state, a change of what state? A change from disobedience and a slavery to sin to obedience and freedom from the power of sin. However, this is not how these verses are usually explained. The usual explanation is we are witnessing a dissolution of the covenant of Moses. Or in the symbolic marriage terms being used, a divorce is occurring. God is divorcing Israel. Now I'm here to tell you emphatically, this is incorrect. Let's start with a couple of basics. The comparison between human family dynamics that are being used symbolically and what God is doing with Israel have sufficient similarities so as to provide a good illustration for us. However, they're not exactly the same. Divorce can indeed be a means of dealing with the unfaithfulness of a marriage partner. However, God cursing His chosen people for their unfaithfulness uh, can indeed, uh, by means of dealing with the unfaithfulness of a marriage partner, go about it differently. God cursing His chosen people for their unfaithfulness is not the exact equivalent of divorce. Further, God's covenant with Israel, the covenant of Moses, had built-in repercussions for disobedience, as well as happy rewards for obedience. These are called the curses and the blessings of the law. 
What God was pronouncing on Israel through Hosea was the curses of the covenant for breaking it. But not breaking it in the sense of the abolishment of the covenant. I want to give you a simple illustration for this using modern terms. The law of your town is, if you run a red light and you hit another car, there's going to be a corresponding penalty. That includes anything from a fine to time in jail to reparations to the damaged car, all of the above. But did breaking of that law against running a red light include dissolving the law itself? Or the entire law code of which it was part? Well, of course not. Therefore, if as usually claimed, the covenant of Moses was hereby abolished by God in response to Israel's unfaithfulness. What a poor Judah! I mean, was the covenant that they were also a party to now gone because of what Ephraim Israel had done? And since we already know that Judah would not suffer just yet a similar fate as their northern brothers, then we understand something interesting about the nature and the terms of the covenant of Moses. It is relevant to entire nations corporately. It's also simultaneously relevant to individuals. Another interesting feature, and I'm going to demonstrate it as we go along, is that the proceeding we just read about in chapter 2 was not a divorce proceeding. It was an adultery proceeding. Further, the nature of it was not to facilitate a divorce, but rather to persuade the offending party, Gomer, symbolically representing the ten tribes of the north, to repent, to change her ways. The proceeding had the hope of reconciliation in mind. Not disillusion. Now be clear, God was not divorcing Israel, nor was he abrogating the covenant of Moses. Rather, he was charting a path to restoration as he was enforcing the terms of the covenant. The covenant remained fully intact. So, we have been presented with three characterizations of the condition of Ephraim Israel as God sees it, as we enter chapter 2. Okay. First of all, Israel will be deservingly afflicted by God. God sows, Jezreel. Second of all, God will not show mercy to Israel, Lohmah. And third, Israel will lose their national God, because they're going to be sent away from their land. This because God is going to curse them with the negative consequences of breaking the terms of His covenant with them. Now, once more, the breaking of the covenant no more means the ending of the covenant than does our breaking a local law mean the ending of the local law code. Immediately, Yehovah, through the Word, offers hope. Hosea 2.1, Nevertheless, 
The people of Israel will number as many as the grains of sand by the sea, which cannot be measured or counted, so that the time will come when instead of being told, you're not my people, it will be said to them, you are the children of the living God. In direct contrast to the curses issued that the ten tribes would be rejected by God, in time he will take them back. In fact, this speaks of a future time when Israel would thrive more than ever. There is little in the biblical era to better describe abundance than a population explosion. And that is what is meant by the sons of Israel being too innumerable to count, like the sands of the seas. The sands of the seas. This is an idiom that we see used from time to time in the Bible. It always means the same thing, a number that's impossible to count. Now, why would God do this? Why? Why this promise of a reversal? It's because, or not, it's, say it again, is it because Israel would repent and become righteous and faithful again? New. See, so often we see God do something that has little to do with a present circumstance. Rather, it is done in order to keep a promise that he made a long time ago. And so he acts to keep his own good name holy, not necessarily for the sake of those who might benefit. Jehovah promised the patriarchs, beginning with Abraham, that what he has just said regarding Israel, he would do. Genesis 13, 11-16. So Lot chose all the plain of the Jordan for himself, and Lot traveled eastward. Thus they separated themselves from each other. Avram lived in the land of Canaan. Lot lived in the cities of the plain, setting up his tent near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were evil, committing, committing great sins against Adonai. Adonai said to Avram after Lot had moved away from him, Look around. From where you are, to the north, the south, the east, the west, all the land that you see, I will give to you and your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as numerous as the specks of dust on the earth. So that if a person can count the specks of dust on the earth, then your descendants can be counted. So the eventual bringing of the ten tribes home would have nothing to do with them returning to covenant faithfulness in order to merit it. It would have to do with God's mercy that is centered around promises He made to the patriarchs of Israel. God has just given hope to the same people He has chastised and told them, you're about to lose everything. There is nothing they can do to stop this inevitable curse they're about to suffer. And likewise, it won't be on their account when they're shown mercy, when they're returned to the land, when their prosperity is rejuvenated. 
See, God operates in these strange dualities. He uses fire to purify or to destroy. He'll use water to purify or to destroy. He'll use blood to sanctify or to make unclean. One of those strange dualities is, is demonstrated here. God promises that in the exact same place that the Israelites rebelled, and so he expelled them from that place, declaring, you're not my people, a time will come when he will return them to that exact same place and declare they are the sons of the living God. Nothing like this has happened to any other nation or people ever, except Israel. 2,700 years after this prophecy, 27 centuries after expelling Israel from the land, God kept his promise to Abraham and returned Israel to the exact same spot from which they had left. Did they deserve it? Had they changed very much? No. You know, truly the first thing that I think of as my plane nears Ben-Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv is the astounding miracle that God has done. I always choose a window seat because I want to be able to gaze to the horizon where I can see nothing but lush fields and endless new buildings, highways jammed with cars, shopping malls and restaurants, hospitals and schools, universities and high-tech companies. I don't ever want to become callous to it. The rebirth of Israel did not happen because of human efforts. It happened because God always keeps His promises. Hosea 2.2 Then the people of Judah and the people of Israel will be gathered together and they will appoint for themselves one leader and they will go up out of the land for that will be a great day, the day of Jezreel. Okay. Verse 2 speaks of a future time when the people of the kingdom of Judah, that's two tribes, and the people of the kingdom of Israel, ten tribes, will be reunited, and they're going to agree on one leader. Now, this much is rather easy to take from this verse, but what does it mean to go up out of the land? What does that mean? Other Bible versions, like the NAS and the RSV, say, going up from the land. And there have been a few different attempts to discern just what this means, including leaving the lands where they have been scattered in the various exiles that Israel's suffered. However, since Mount Sinai, the term to go up always meant to go to Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. And once the temple was built, it meant to go up to the temple in Jerusalem. Why up? Well, first of all, Jerusalem sits at an altitude of around 2,500 feet, the highest place in Judah. Also because God is always seen as living up in heaven. In nearly all God's systems, shrines and altars were built on high places, hills, mountaintops, to get closest to the gods. Therefore, I think that this statement about the reunited people of Israel going up 
is about them returning together to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And we must always remember that when there was no temple, or Israel was away from their temple, there was no way to atone for sins through animal sacrifices. So it was a pretty serious problem for them, and it was constantly on their minds. Well, the day, or better, the era, that this restoration comes to fruition is called here the day of Jez, Jezreel. Yes, Riel. And now notice that once again we encounter a dualism. Okay? Jezreel, as the name of Hosea's first child, was first symbolically meant as a negative thing. And yet it means God sows in both cases. However, in chapter 1, it meant that God sowed destruction in Israel. Now the same term is used to say that God will sow restoration and abundance in Israel at some future point. The concept being spoken of in this verse is also spoken of in the prophet Ezekiel's book. This important prophecy in Ezekiel is worth reading because it works hand in glove with this one we've just been reading. In Hosea. So open your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37. I'm going to start reading at verse 1. With the hand of Adonai upon me, Adonai carried me out by his spirit and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He had me pass by all around them. There were so many bones lying in the valley, and they were so dry. And he asked me, human being, can these bones live? And I answered, Adonai Elohim, only you know that. And then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, dry bones, here's what Adonai has to say. To these bones, Adonai Elohim says, I will make breath enter you, you will live. I will attach ligaments to you, make flesh grow on you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you. You will live, and you will know that I am Adonai. So I prophesied as ordered, and while I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. It was the bones coming together, each bone in its proper place. And as I watched, ligaments grew on them, flesh appeared, skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. So next he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, human being, say to the breath, that Adonai says, come from the four winds, breathe, breathe on these slain so that they can live. So I prophesied as order, and the breath came into them, and they were alive. And they stood up on their feet, a huge army. And then he said to me, human being, these are the bones of the whole house of Israel. And they're saying, our bones have dried up, our hope is gone, we're completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them that Adonai Elohim says, My people, I will open your graves and make you get up out of your graves, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And then you will know that I am Adonai when I have opened your graves and made you get up out of your graves, my people. I will put my spirit in you. You will be alive, and then I will place you in your own land. And you, know, you will know that I, Adonai, have spoken, that I have done it, says Adonai. 
And the word of Adonai came to me, you, human being, take one stick and write on it for Judah, those joined with him among the people of Israel. Next, take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel who are joined with him. Finally, bring them together into a single stick, so they become one in your hand. And when your people ask you what all this means, tell them that, and I, Elohim, says this, I'll take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, together with the tribes of Israel who are joined with him, and put them together with the stick of Judah, and make them a single stick, so that they become one in my hand. And the sticks on which you write are to be in your hand as they watch. And then say to them that Adonai Elohim says, I will take the people of Israel from among the nations where they have gone and gathered them from every side and bring them back to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel, and one king will be king for all of them. They will no longer be two nations and they will never again be divided into two kingdoms. They will never again defile themselves with their idols, their detestable things, or any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the places where they've been living and sinning, and I will cleanse them, so that they will be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David will be the king over them, and all of them will have one shepherd, and they will live by my rulings and keep and observe my regulations. They will live in the land I gave to uh, Jacob, my servant, where your ancestors lived, they will live there. They, their children, their grandchildren, forever. And David, my servant, will be their leader forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them, an everlasting covenant. I will give to them, increase their numbers, and set my sanctuary among them forever. My home will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. The nations will know that I am Adonai who sets Israel apart as holy when my sanctuary is with them forever. I hope you can see how these two, what we just read in Hosea and how this just completely works together. So between the words of Hosea and Ezekiel, we get a rather robust picture of something that's actually already in progress. This is not pie in the sky. It's currently happening. Judah and Israel are making their way back to the reborn nation of Israel. And although the non-Gentile people of um, Israel are called Jews, that is in some ways misleading and a misnomer. See, the exiles of Judah and those who lived in the Roman province of Judea, they were called Jews. However, more correctly, those folks were from the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. This does not speak of the ten tribes of the north that were known by the dual names of Ephraim and Israel. Hosea and Israel speak of a day, of rather Ezekiel. Hosea and Ezekiel speak of a day when the people of Judah and the people of Israel will reunite in their own land. This is happening as I speak to you. The happy reunion's underway. 
It's out of sense. Shivers down your spine. We are literally eyewitnesses to the fulfillment of this prophecy. I have personally witnessed people arriving at Ben-Gurion Airport who were immigrating to Israel from the tribe of Manasseh, one of the ten tribes of Israel. Of course, this prophecy isn't completed. Messiah has to return, the king from the house of David, before this prophecy is fully completed. But this might be a clue that we aren't all that far off from Yeshua's return. Maybe you want to take this a little bit seriously. Hosea 2.3 Say to your brothers, Ami, my people. To your sisters, Ruchma, pitied. See, this is a statement meaning that God acknowledges that the curse from Israel breaking the law has been lifted and reversed. Restoration has happened. God has reaccepted His people, my people, and shown them mercy, pitied. No divorce ever occurred, but there was a long period of estrangement. Now, one of the things that I find fascinating about this reunification is that the tribal days of Israel ended before Christ was born. Not since the Babylonian exile of the 6th century BC has Israel segregated themselves or their land according to tribe and tribal territory. When I look at pre-World War II commentaries on Hosea and Ezekiel, in other words, before Israel was remade as a nation, the general thought is that speaking of the return of the tribes at some future time was merely an anachronistic way of speaking. Okay, that is, by the time this reunion would occur, any vestige of tribalism would have been long gone and the people really wouldn't even know what tribes their very ancient ancestors might have belonged to. Yet, in one sense, one could say that the tribes have returned. Against all odds, these long-lost Israelites do have a memory of the tribes they came from so very long ago. In fact, one of the more known groups of people to emigrate to Israel was given the nickname of the Black Jews of Ethiopia. There have been a couple of popular films and documentaries made about this event and this daring rescue that began a rather large migration of these Ethiopians to modern Israel. But in fact, these Ethiopians are not from the tribes of Judah or Benjamin. This will explain, they will explain to you, they'll tell you that they are from the tribe of Dan, one of the ten northern tribes of Ephraim Israel. It's only that many, many of them adopted the religion of Judaism as an expression of their Hebrew faith, and so in that way they've been labeled Jews. But tribally speaking, they're Danites. Now, as I've often 
spoken on the subject of prophecy. I've stated that in my view, the primary problem with understanding biblical prophecy is we tend to not take it literally enough. We try to make it fit with the world as it currently exists, and so we twist and we turn its, its meaning and teach it that way. When we do that, we tend to miss it when a prophecy is actually being fulfilled. Let's vow not to do the same as the prophecies of the end times begin to happen in rapid succession, exactly, exactly as they were written that they're going to happen. You know, restoration is such a beautiful thing. Israel blundered, it sinned its way into God's curse upon them, all the while self-assured that their invention of a hybridized religious system was pleasing to him, and complete disregard of the covenant of Moses and numerous other warnings that had been given to them to obey Jehovah and to worship only him. What God asked of Israel, and he is asking it of us, is to wait. To wait in faith and in faithfulness for what he has promised to come about. After giving Hosea panoramic understanding of how this is all going to play out for Israel, the symbolic complaint of God towards Israel continues in verse 4. Hosea 2.4, rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she isn't my wife and I'm not her husband. She must remove her whoring from her face, her adulteries from between her breasts. A better English word to begin this verse than rebuke is to accuse. Accuse. See, this is because a legal proceeding against adultery is what's being envisioned here. The complaint that she isn't my wife and I'm not her husband isn't meant as a point of legal fact. It is what the essence of Gomer's whoredom amounts to in the eyes of the husband. That is, she's not behaving as a loyal wife. Thus, she must not want Hosea as her husband. Once more, do not take this illustration that is given in family symbolism too far. Israel was not God's legal wife. God was not Israel's legal husband, even though there are similarities in the relationship that are useful to help us understand God's point of view. In fact, it is only in the pagan religions that a god, such as Baal, would, believed, would be believed to have an actual legal wife. All right, in his case, a female god, like Ashtoreth. However, to be clear, in this symbolic picture, it is meant to depict God in the role as the husband and Israel in the role of an unfaithful wife. That's the idea of it. Now, we're going to stop here and continue in Hosea chapter 2 next time.